Hello, G.I. Joe Burgers. You're listening to the Christmas Special, Special Edition, dealing with G.I. Joe Special Missions. My name is Stephen, and I'd just like to wish everybody out there a happy holidays. If you're listening to this on December 25th, and that date happens to have some significance for you, Merry Christmas! But... If Christmas has nothing to do with you, I certainly hope that during this time you're finding a little bit of time to set aside to enjoy your hobby, just like yours truly. As always, I'm joined by my faithful cohorts, Paul, Robert, and uh, Special Missions Cujo. It's your episode! Indeed. <laughs> And as we've said, we are definitely going to jump into special missions. This is something that in all the years of our podcasting, we have never fully addressed in an episode. Uh, Special Missions was a comic series, a splinter title that came out of the main G.I. Joe Real American Hero series because it was doing so fabulously well. Let me take you back in time to 1985. G.I. Joe was the hottest toy in Toy Isles, spurred on by a hit cartoon series that made G.I. Joe a household name and a very, very well-written, realistic comic book. So they figured, hell, this comic is selling so well, better, in fact, than Marvel's other top-selling titles like The Amazing Spider-Man and The X-Men. That was Chris Claremont's run the X-Men, so like, I mean, G.I. Joe was certainly turning some units. So, they were selling so many comics, they decided, why don't we bring out another title? Just, uh, make Harmer work that much harder. So, once every two months, a new issue of G.I. Joe Special Missions appeared. They then ramped it up to once a month, before ending their run in 1989 with 28 issues. 28 issues of one-shot goodness. More issues than your (laughs) (laughs) ex-girlfriend. Well, 28 issues, one-shot issues, except for a two-parter. There's one two-parter in all of this called In From the Cold and Into the Fire, which were issues uh, 14 and 15, actually. I'm curious, why do you guys think they went with the anthology style of storytelling? I think it allowed them to kind of like ditch continuity and just show these special missions the trade paperback collections of gi joe special missions that idw put out all four of the volumes have a foreword by gi joe another toy scribe uh, mark belomo and he says in the sort of introduction forward that the gi joe special missions comic contained missions so secret that even the joes who go on them are told only the bare minimum on a strictly need-to-know basis moreover and most importantly without a list of toys that larry harmer was mandated to include in each issue he had more liberty to craft his narratives he was emancipated allowed to truly delve into the spirit and dynamic nature of each character Furthermore, Special Missions' tales were research-laden, with settings in political hotspots and other inaccessible locations around the globe. Truly, Special Missions was less about selling toys, with more attention being placed on a dense story and visceral artwork. Yeah, he seems to be on point there. Absolutely, man. He's a chronicler of, of well, I suppose, the, the 80s toy boom, G.I. Joe being sort of the, the, the forerunner. Of, uh, of 80s toy franchises. And absolutely, Special Missions was an extremely easily accessible book 
on one hand, because the stories were typically one-shots and you didn't need any kind of backgrounding to enjoy them, but then on the other hand were a little bit exclusive because the level of technical detail and political intrigue and, uh, and complexity to the stories were of a, of a standard that the main title did not approach typically. Uh, there are a few exceptions to that, and we will get into that uh, in this episode. And the way the episode will play out is the four of us have each picked out our favorites and, of course, our least favorites in true G.I. Joburg style. Come on, we're all about picking out faves and weeding out the stinkers. And we are going to run through this list, giving reasons for our picks in chronological order. So we're going to mix the bad in with the good to ultimately give you a list of our highs and lows from the series and hopefully address most of the issues in between. 28 issues is a limited run, but not limited enough to cover everything within the scope of this episode. But hopefully we'll touch on some of your favorites as well. And with any luck, you'll also see uh, where special missions could have been improved uh, in our weakest uh, picks. The hell you say? I kind of like the idea that special missions kind of weaves in between the main storyline um, and, and the way that it's written, you know, with having continuity spread between certain issues of special missions, but they kind of separated by other issues of, of special missions. I got the impression, especially when rereading this run, that these missions kind of weave, you know, they kind of, they're happening sort of real time as things are happening in the main storyline, which kind of adds to their special mission status. If, I'm enjoying the ambient that the, the dog is bringing to the proceedings. <laughs> I'm so sorry, dude. I've been trying to mute that. That's why I didn't want to not, come earlier. Not at all, brother. Not at all. Larry Harmer always said that if you nail the characters, the plotting will become easier. He was a very fly-by-the-seat-of-his-pants kind of author. But what Special Missions forced him to do was to pay more attention to the plotting because it was the conclusion of each issue that he would always have to drive towards. Whereas in the main series, if he didn't conclude a plot line by the end of the issue, he could always pick it up in the next issue. I think Special Missions, by crafting self-contained stories, it forced him to make plotting stronger than character work. And I think because his characters were so vivid, in, in his mind at least, uh, the both of them worked in symphony to create very compelling reads. So I view Special Missions actually as some of the strongest of his work ever. Because he's not caught up with the Arashikage uh, complexities or or, or uh, days of our lives kind of soap opera writing of like six degrees of separation between Cobra Commander and Snake Eyes. I mean, <laughs> none of that factors into special missions. He's able to take near unused characters, breathe some life into them, but mainly make the adventure the primary focus. And each special mission, the, the really successful ones, the ones that rise to the top in terms of my favor, each had almost a parable to them. Shall we begin that special mission? <laughs> I think we're on the precipice, friend. 
But first, and only because Paul insists, no, we're right. going we're going <laughs> to revisit an old section that we typically always did. But this being the Christmas special, and it being a a time of perhaps gift giving, if you're lucky enough, <laughs> uh, Paul has got some new toys that he would like to share with all of us that have come into his life, and we're gonna let him because we like toys here on GI Joburg. Go for it, Paulie. Yay! <laughs> it's really refreshing to have some G.I. Joe stuff to talk about in this segment because getting G.I. Joes for us uh, South Africans lately has been quite tricky. So uh, I recently got a G.I. Joe Locust. A very minty fresh G.I. Joe Locust, courtesy of Steve. This thing is badass. I love this vehicle. I, I know that I've spoken about it on earlier episodes. That's the 1990 Locust. This is um, a vehicle... I used to have, because I kind of inherited it from David, who got it from Canada years ago, and then mine, I don't know, just, it vaporized, it vanished into the mists of time, and now I have a new one, and I love it, and it's amazing, and it accommodates modern era figures as well, if anybody cares. Bro, everybody cares, trust me. No, I know, I know they care. My good buddy, FormBX257, on his YouTube channel, now has a section dealing with every vehicle's entitled, Does a Modern Figure Fit in It? Does it fit? <laughs> That's what she said. Anyway, um, uh. so I finally got my hands on, on this bad boy, um, and I'm very happy. It's been sitting in my studio, and I've been zipping around with it, because it's such a, a fun little toy. You can hold it in one hand. The guns are, are great. They're quite beefy. The canopy is really easy to deal with. Unscratched canopy, by the way, listeners. This is a minty fresh locust. I mean, it didn't come in a box, but it's, from what I can tell, it's only been very recently opened or it was kept in a hermetically sealed collection room because, oh my word, this thing is amazing. I love this toy and I, I couldn't recommend it more uh, to a Joe fan. If you guys haven't got one, you got to get one. Uh, it's definitely something I feel is missing in the Joe Motor Pool, uh, so you have to fill that gap. Totally have to get it, and I'm very happy I got it. The other thing, but it's not a G.I. Joe-based thing, but I'm going to throw it in here anyway, is I got a really big Batmobile for myself <laughs> from the Batman the Animated Series. I know I'm not the only one on this podcast who has one, and I got a very fly Batman to go with it, also courtesy of Steve. Both TAS style? Yeah, the, the animated series. So oh, the, that's nice, dude. Yeah, because that's like my favorite Batmobile. Like, bar none. Like, well, the, the, the artwork in that but, series, dude. The artwork. That oh, was insane. I love that series. But yeah, I don't want to get into Batman too much. But uh, yeah, so that's just my shout-out of the cool shit that has found its way to me. And I'm very happy about. As am I. That Batmobile is a beaut. So sweet! <laughs> the day after Paul picked his up from uh, a nearby Johannesburg store, uh, and he was sort of parading around on the Skype video call that we had shortly after that, I was like, Paul, please, I'll wire you some money, but get me one, like, tomorrow. <laughs> and I so the very next day, he, he made the, the pilgrimage out to the same store, and thankfully the, the woman at the counter gave him the same discount, even though it was for a friend and not him. Um, and he, uh, he posted it off to me, and it arrived very shortly after that. Fantastic. Yeah. Yep. Beauty. Anyone else want to chime in with some new stuff? Uh, I'll say something random. Um, we get the G.I. Joe Collectors Club uh, magazine. I think it's bi-monthly. 
But this issue is actually pretty interesting. A lot of them don't read real well, but the articles have been getting good lately. It's kind of interesting. They talk about, uh, of note to you, Stephen, what's that? The Kindle Hub or whatever that the G.I. Joe people can write on? Kindle Worlds. Yeah. They, uh, uh, they it was a pipe dream, Cujo. I think I no, got no, no, to no. about 10,000 words on my, my story. And then uh, that's where well, here's I Well, here's the fire. Uh, they interviewed a writer, so I think you should drop that uh, seal, chapter one, on him. That'd be nice. <laughs> was this the Jim Beard uh, short story? Uh, I couldn't say, brother. Uh, the name escapes me at the moment. But uh, if you're looking for it, the G.I. Joe Collectors Club magazine is pretty tight. Had Outback on the cover in, in a Christmas hat. <laughs> so nice. Was it Tiger Force Outback with the white beard? It was, dude. It oh, really was. perfect, perfect, perfect. Yeah, it was nice. They did a good job on this one. Nice, beautiful. That's how I like my Outback, you know, white hair flavored. I'm just quickly shoves us in there. I had to drop my <laughs> pre-order for my uh, Tiger Force Outback purely because of the exchange rate. Uh, I couldn't justify paying well over a thousand rons for a GI Joe toy. Uh, um, and that's before the shipping so I've had to sadly drop that but I have to agree that is also my favorite flavor of Outback he's like a Jedi Grand Master of Survival oh he's the dad dude tigers (laughs) alright gents Let's get into it. G.I. Joe Special Missions. And first up, with his pick for favorite G.I. Joe Special Missions issue, it's our brother from North America, Cujo. I think there was a uh, Special Mission Zero that Robert alluded to. Uh, That one missed me. I I don't know anything about that one. Is it anything noteworthy? I think it's quite awesome. Um, It's it's quite a short story where the plane was hijacked and they kind of have to board the airplane and and, uh, apprehend the hijackers. Did they drop it before one or was it like a a post? Yeah, no, it it came before one. It formed part of the giant-sized issue 50. Okay, okay. In which G.I. Joe invaded Springfield and this formed a, a backup story in the same issue and yes. also features some delightful upskirt action on lady j somewhat oh. unnecessary one might say but <laughs> she's got some tidy whities on such is life but i begin my journey at special missions one a good place to start that's for sure yeah i'm excited the cover is somewhat misleading i'm gonna just uh just Right off the bat, say, I don't like it. Yeah, please. I'd, I'd like to know your opinions. My dislike. Okay, well, we've got two aquatic G.I. Joes not illustrated terribly faithfully. All right, enough out of you. Okay, okay, fine. I'll leave it at that then. Special Missions Issue 1 illustrates what is often a reoccurring theme in, in G.I. Joe comics, and that is a, an epic cover that really doesn't really happen in the comic or barely happens. Um, and, and this is an example of that. I, I don't know. I don't look too favorably upon Wetsuit as a figure or, or in the series. But I do like how Special Missions uh, put the two divers, the two G.I. Joe divers together. And, and you kind of got them uh, bouncing off each other a little bit personality-wise. Not just divers, but they're both SEAL members. That was their, Agreed. F- their nice former insight, posting. I, I know that Paul appreciates the fact that they both have very compact uh, assault weapons, 
uh, is that one an Uzi and a Mac 10 or Mac 11? Yeah, that's what I like got the right. Yeah, definitely an Uzi so, and a Mac 10. I like it visually, but those two guns, if I'm not mistaken, are very prone to uh, being waterlogged. You'd be correct, except for these are built to G.I. Joe specs. So, you know. Oh, anyway, right. I love the cover. It feels, it just feels like the kind of G.I. Joe that I want to open up. As far as the issue itself, the reason why this stood out to me is it feels like issue one would be a mission statement for a series that essentially only a handful of people worked on. So, now, Stephen, you mentioned that G.I. Joe was on fire at the time, and that's why they, they pushed out another series. Uh, do you have words to back that up, or is that just what you're assuming? Well, are you looking for a quote? <laughs> uh, I do know that the, the, the sales figures, certainly if you uh, look back at uh, subscription statistics around 1985, G.I. Joe was certainly leading uh, the Uncanny X-Men and the Amazing Spider-Man. Yeah, well, the G.I. Joe comic, it, it hit at the perfect time for the franchise. With this, and, and I'm going to have to go back and read the regular G.I. Joe series at that time. But it feels like that this is their their art or their their way that they're expressing the uh, G.I. Joe franchise is evolving. And, and they're telling more personal war stories. Uh, like, I think Robert uh, said something like uh, these encapsulated stories. So, mm. I don't know, this one kind of kind of kicked it off for me um and you know if destro by the end of this the comic is saying words like conspiracy then i'm totally in and i know paul's in um Mm -hmm. so i just like the uh i like the use of eels um i would also kind of want to highlight uh herb trempy's art um rip uh it's it's interesting because he draws essentially the whole series right steven Correct. Uh, to my knowledge, there is only one issue that he did not do the pencils on. And more than that, he would often do the inks as well. Andy Mashinsky took up some of the, the inking on the title because he was also doing uh, inks for the main run. But uh, for the most part, Herb Trimpey is credited for art on the series and not just pencils. I was about to say, I wonder how many... Um of those panels, uh, Larry Homer actually um, thumbnailed for, because I know that um, back in those days, a lot of the times, some of the writers, especially if they were um, sort of adept at illustration, uh, often used to thumbnail their own pages. And Larry Homer is one of those creatives, or at least in my, to my knowledge, that does that a lot. I I know that recently on the Modern Storm Shadow, he did that run. I think it was four issue run. He pretty much storyboarded the whole issue the the whole series and uh, another pencil that actually picked up and uh, finished them all and, and it's not a bad thing this is not a negative sometimes uh to somebody like hope trimpy i'm sure it was quite a, a a boon actually because you know you didn't have to think too much and, and i'm sure hope trimpy was doing this and the regular series at the same time which if uh, you kids know anything about drawing that's a lot of work damn <laughs> so yeah, so I wouldn't be surprised if Larry Homer was in there storyboarding or thumbnailing some of those pages. Trimpy goes through phases, as far as I can tell. Sometimes uh, his his pencils are dead on. Sometimes they're perhaps a little bit rushed, almost. Issue zero seemed rushed. Uh, I, I, the reason being, I think it might have been an afterthought. It might have had a very short uh, time frame. But issue one is incredible. I mean, I think we can all agree, like, 
the detail in characters' faces and expressions are dead on. In fact, there are only two panels in the entire issue that, that do bug me a bit. <laughs> the one is on page nine, where Baroness jumps through her own fangs' rotor blades as she ditches her helicopter in the water. The other is, once again, Baroness on page 13, where she looks but ugly. Like, incredibly, hideously ugly. I don't know if you guys... That uh, should never happen. Baroness is <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Vaginal void. Uh, oh. If you are reading the trade paperback, uh, page 13, where Baroness looks hideous, is on page 35 of the, the trade paperback. <laughs> and Firefly is looking like a bouse with like like long gloves, which he never wears for the rest of the issue. Anyway, slight art error. I do like the fact that 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 Firefly's camera pattern has taken on a more naval tone in this issue. And my final art insight: the multiple tones used on the water and the skyline evoke such an incredible sense of of weather. Like the water in this issue is beautiful. I mean, it's extremely turbulent. It's choppy seas. It's always moving. It's definitely not a flat tropical water. Like, everything is in motion. Ships are depicted keeling, you know, from side to side. Uh, there, there is a lot of motion and beauty and, like, roiling waters. It seems like a dangerous, hostile environment, even when there aren't missiles being spat uh, from helicopters at one another. However uh, dramatic Baroness ditched her, her fang, um, there's a couple people that dumped their choppers in this this episode, or this uh, mission, rather. So, I mean, like, I when I'm looking at Trempy's art, at least in this series, uh, this, is, this, is, this series is about telling stories. It's not about uh, blowing out pages. So, I mean, it's rarely ever, uh, you know, a real large frame. The pages are always broken into thirds. So for me, as an artist or, or somebody that's looking what the intention is, the splashy covers set the table for like, it invites you in, and then the art gets modest because the stories are real. So I mean, I, I like I like what Trumpy's up to. I, I kind of really, as soon as I synced up with what I think that they were up to, I, I really started to enjoy uh, their work together, uh, Trumpy and uh, Hama. So... That's kind of what really came together with me about the first one. Um, again, I love conspiracies. I love the fact that it was the U.S. up to a conspiracy and kind of just tricked everybody, uh, which um, it, that has happened in history a couple times. So maybe uh, maybe that was commentary by Hama, who is a uh, seasoned vet in the world, um, in the ways of the world, rather. So uh, Special Missions 1, as a mission statement, really kind of said... It was Hama going, by the way, we're growing up, enjoy a little bit of a, a more adult story. Yeah, and just kind of laying more, out how the world is. Yeah, there's a lot more ambivalence. It's kind of like uh, the lines between good and evil are, are often blurred in the real world. Uh, that's something that I find is carried across, uh, across many of the special missions Agreed. issues, Agreed. actually. But also the panel layout of special missions is a lot more, like you were saying, it's a lot more kind of modest. Uh, but I find that it's almost, it's, it's very similar to a lot of the fringe comics uh, that tend to have very strong panel layouts like this. This is also very Wally Wood. 
Um, and it's a lot more serious. It reads a lot more seriously. Um, I also just wanted to just jump in and, and just add to what Kujo's saying and, and agree with what he's saying from an artistic point of view. It is just such a pity that when they reprinted these graphic novels, that they got some D-bag to color them. Because I hate the value range used in the comic in these recolors in the graphic novels. They are not the same as the originals and they do throw you off a bit because everything is just like garish. Anyway, I'll get to rant about that later when I have my turn. <laughs> no, so I mean, that's that's basically all I have to say about the first issue. Uh, I, I concur um, with, with what uh, you just laid out about the ambiguity of and uh, ambivalence that it treats uh, all parties involved. My final note is just the fact that uh, Hama is very on the nose about uh, Firefly, who's boarding a ship, and says, you know, I'm about, you know, personal gain and, you know, the promise of riches. Uh, that's just good stuff. I mean, of course, it should have been a thought bubble, but I love the fact that he runs into battle saying that. So He's just undermining the Baroness. That's why he's saying it out loud. Do you think he was trolling her? Is that is that what he was doing? Absolutely. Is he trolling her the whole issue? Absolutely, dude. Oh, my gosh. Fireflies oh my are back, dude. He's not in it for Cobra and their ideals. Like, Baroness is a true believer. <laughs> Fireflies is in it for money. She's jumping onto the, the, the Russian ship, shouting, For Cobra! Rat-a-tat-a-tat. For any of the, the the gentlemen out there listening to the the GI Joe Berg gents, uh, that's a reason to pick up this issue again. Is because maybe I didn't even pick up the subtext between Baroness and Firefly. Uh, yeah, so that that's that's issue one for me. <laughs> Do you pick up the the running gags between Colonel Brekoff and Dana? That you know she's always kind of like <laughs> trying to impress him, and he's always always throwing it back in her face. She manages to like save them both by crash landing the badly damaged hind attack helicopter on the deck of the Soviet uh, ship. <laughs> and he says, nice landing, Dana. Now I don't have to file that negative report on you to the KGB. Nice. <laughs> what? What? She's performing exemplary and he was going to like like out her to the KGB. Before we kind of move on from like the ambiguity of the storytelling, Rob, what's your take on it? Like, is this something that you appreciate now more as an adult or did you did you kind of see it as a when you read it the first time? I think the first time I read it was probably not when I was super young. But I mean, I, I do like these stories more because I feel more real world. Um, and also he did the- it! <laughs> He got it in there. Yeah, <laughs> shit's going to get real. <laughs> Damn right. That's the big, biggest question in Special Missions is, do you enjoy the more ambiguous kind of roles that everybody plays? I think I do. That's probably why I enjoy them more than the straightforward sort of almost superhero-y stories of the main series. You know, they, they kind of, you know, they, they can explore themes that are more adult, I think. Number one is probably also one of my favorite issues. Yeah, as you said, it lays out what this series of G.I. Joe comics is about. And number one, ironically, the Joes have a flawless victory, but that was not necessarily setting the tone for what would transpire in the rest of the special missions run. Mm. Sometimes the G.I. Joes... Nice segue. Sometimes the G.I. Joes did not uh, enjoy a flawless victory. Sometimes the 
victory was found not in achieving the, the objective that they set out to achieve, but rather unexpectedly in another way. And I suppose by nice segue, you mean we're going to talk a little bit about issue number eight, entitled Ambush. Is that right? Oh, I love that issue. Right, you are, sir. We all kind of like that issue a great deal. It's it's mm. trimpy Harmer storytelling at its best, when the synergy between writer and artist uh, were at its peak. That That's sometimes the insider chat right there. The, the plotting was so strong that you didn't need a spoken word to tell the story. Uh, it was perhaps a hangover from the silent issue days, but certainly these guys knew exactly what kind of story they wanted to tell when they set out to do it. And it is a very straightforward tale of Joe's marching through a jungle to intercept a Russian convoy carrying a defector uh, with a computer component, uh, some guidance chips of some kind, uh, that a CIA man named Anderson wanted to recapture this defector and the computer chips. But of course, he was setting them up from the beginning. The Joes were meant to fail in their objective, uh, and this was just to add credibility to the defection of the American, so that he could install these computer chips in Russian computers, and they would then destroy said computers. It was basically just a way of double bluffing the Russians. And the Joes were supposed to take the fall and be eliminated while trying to reacquire this defector or kill him. But, of course, Anderson knew the psych profile of the G.I. Joes well enough to know that they wouldn't kill an unarmed man, even if he was a traitor. Lowlight wouldn't be able to pull that trigger. <laughs> so Lowlight beans him over the head with his rifle and steals the computer chips, thus thwarting Anderson's plan to disable Russian computers. So, when viewed objectively, America lost. If this was a, a Cold War gambit between superpowers, the United States and the USSR, the American plots to disable Russian computers failed because of the G.I. Joes. But actually, the way I read this is that the bad guy, the, the big bad guy for number eight's uh, ambush issue was actually the CIA representative Anderson. And so the Joes, in their victory, actually just thwarted the CIA and stuck it to a man who would sooner send them off to die than give them all of the information. Let me step into the fray on this one for a second, Stephen. Do it, buddy. That's my other kind of highlight that really uh, made me fall in love with this series again when I was reading it, is there's a couple panels on page three, I, I think, with Lowlight and Anderson talking on a plane. I want to say Hama is is writing for Lowlight in this scene, and and maybe one of his superiors, let's just say the CIA, is talking to him. And the CIA guy uses words like collateral damage and you know eliminate a target, and uh, Lowlight's basically going, uh, you can't say the real word, can you? Mm. And he's saying you can't even say you want me to kill the guy. So no. basically, like. It feels like Hama is like, this is, this is the kind of stuff you deal with, where your superior is telling you something that they can't even reconcile themselves. So, like, again, I think that this highlights just the real, the strength of, of their, of Hama's writing in this series. I, I just really love those frames. The integrity he gives to the G.I. Joes as just yeah. being, being the guys in the field who have to get the job done 
and the the spineless, you know, undercover covert types who, as you say, can't even bring themselves to say the word. This is clearly something that they themselves couldn't bring themselves to do. So they get someone else to do their dirty work. And that is so often the role of the G.I. Joes uh, in special missions particularly. All those euphemisms uh, that are used by Anderson are very important. As you guys said, they do separate uh, what the Joes are versus uh, sort of the U.S. military or the, you know, the sort of militaristic side of the government because what I like about it, what it's doing is it's setting up the Joes as relatable to us as readers because it's telling us that, you know, the Joes are actually people and they care about these things and these are things, you know, they don't take killing lightly even though they've been trained to do it and all that. And also that um, they, at the end of the day, need to, you know, sort of reconcile their actions. They need to look at themselves in the in the... Whereas the CIA in this regard is portrayed as a bunch of spooks that are giving out all kinds of euphemisms to make themselves sleep better at the end of the day just to get the job done. It's just, it's two different approaches to getting the job done. This issue is so serious, Wild Bill even takes his glasses off. What the hell you say? How often do you get to see Wild Bill take his glasses off? Uh, Never, actually. Another strength of this issue, it's hell of a subtle the silent panels convey a lot of information about military protocol when approaching a target and moving under cover of darkness, but without spelling it out. And this is something that will come back, that I will certainly come back to when we talk about a later issue, which follows the mold of issue 8 quite closely with a few notable differences. Something uh, I just want to share with our listeners and with you guys regarding Mission 8 uh, when I was reading, <laughs> I like eight, that mission eight. <laughs> yeah, mission eight or issue eight. Uh, no, no, mission eight. It's good. mission eight. And during those quiet moments that you were talking about now, I couldn't help but referencing the Predator movie, the first Predator, the ambience that's set up in the Predator film when when the guys are you know looking and they they've just landed uh, in the in the jungle and they sort of you know creeping through it and and all that. And I kept referencing that when I was reading that um, that spread, uh, you know, those couple of pages, because that's how it felt. Like th- those pages managed to inspire a whole bunch of um, sort of atmospheric changes and sounds and and the energy without having any sound, and and that is amazing. Uh, that is something that I you, give this. You said predator. Behind yeah. The- Anytime. I, I missed I missed the frame where Beachhead picked up the back end of a truck by the axles and, and, and ran it into the village. Yeah, but I mean, like, before they get there, duh. Uh, I'm, playing they, I'm playing around. Yeah, yeah, no, I hear you are. Do you also equate Beachhead and Arnold Schwarzenegger? So it's not just me. <laughs> <laughs> Beachhead is probably the most mysterious Joe of all, and, and he's just been laying low the whole time. Would you guys say that's issue 8 done? Feels right. As done as we're likely to get, I mean, we must keep keep some kind of time constraints. I think our next issue is mine, and it's actually my weakest issue uh, of the special missions run that I'll be leading with, because it is issue number 10, entitled Turnabouts. <laughs> well, we're off to a flying start by examining the cover, which is... is pretty damn strange. It's got three guys encircled by gunmen, which are shrouded in darkness. The one guy 
has a gigantic pipe sticking out of his mouth. He looks a bit heavier set. We don't recognize him. The other guy in the foreground might be a Joe that we recognize, but he's wearing a yellow jacket, holding an umbrella and an Uzi, and he's wearing a bowler hat. Okay, weird. Uh, the third character we're definitely going to recognize, but just because of his loud Hawaii Five-O shirt, and it has to be Chuckles, but he's kind of facing away from the viewer, and basically this cover kind of, it's it's misleading and lazy, and it's not something that I would necessarily uh, associate with G.I. Joe. There are no really recognizable characters, uh, the, the point of view is weird. Uh, there are no vehicles, and you know I'm a vehicle kind of guy. But anyway, so, I mean, the, the cover kind of drops the ball a little bit, and the issue itself doesn't really deliver. Uh, as far as I'm concerned, this is probably Larry Harmer's least sophisticated bit of writing. It's a little bit too preachy, and it relies on way too many leaps of faith, unfortunately. Uh, compelling writing needs to have some level of of danger. The Joes seem to be on top of the situation at all times without actually doing any serious prep. It's really just chuckles and roadblock trying to escort a African leader who's been living in the United Kingdom back to his native state of Kalingaland, uh, which is a fictional country, but a number of African leaders and despots were actually educated at institutions like Oxford and Cambridge. I think Robert Mugabe, the uh, despotic leader of Zimbabwe, is actually perhaps inspiration for Prince Ngoto of Equatorial Kalingaland. But in any case, the Joes have basically been tapped for this mission as a trade-off with the Special Air Service, or SAS. They arrive at uh, Prince Ngoto's cottage and immediately are confronting a trio of gunmen. Oh no, four gunmen, I should say, who look like, I don't know, they look like they are Portuguese mafia? or It's weird. The gunmen themselves are, I believe, communists. So they have an interest in killing this prince because they want a communist uh, puppet government in Kalingaland instead of a, uh, a monarchy. So they're trying to assassinate Prince uh, Ngoto, but they seem to be pretty rubbish at it because they were there, clearly before the Joes, in possession of much heavier arms than the Joes, but can't take out one lonely prince sitting in his cottage. The Joes managed to overpower them, gun them down, and then take off with the prince in their custody. They drive right onto an airstrip and board a plane. Not a military transport, but a civilian aircraft, which also unsophisticated storytelling from Mr. Harmer, because I'm sorry, man, like even in the 80s, you couldn't just drive onto the tarmac and board a plane. You know, these guys are are hoping to make their getaway in plain clothes. You know, not anything can happen in the 80s. By the way, just saying. <laughs> no, Harmer should know better than that. Come on, this guy served as such an educator to me personally. I'm glad I didn't encounter this issue as a child because this is not how the world works. Anyway, so it's time now for <laughs> coincidence number one. They board this plane 
hoping to get away rather um, inconspicuously because they are dressed in rather inconspicuous clothes. As I say, Roadblock is wearing a bowler hat and looking very uh, British, I suppose. But they managed to spot on this rather anonymous plane two guys that have to be more of the gun crowd than the sun crowd uh, is the, the quip <laughs> that <laughs> Chuckles employs. I don't know how. I mean, do, 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 do certain people just like look like gunmen from the get-go? Roadblock sizes up the fact that they don't seem to be carrying any small arms on their person. Well, that's a good thing, since they're in an aircraft, and that they don't have any carry-on luggage. How he surmised that when the luggage bins were closed, I don't know. So he walks off to the galley and takes a look in the food trays and happens to find the Uzis that they had uh, hidden there. I mean, the, the coincidences are just staggering. Uh, he, in record time, manages to disassemble the guns and remove the firing pins without any of the uh, stewardesses noticing, I, I presume. So when the meals wind up with their um, guns... I'm sure Chuckles was distracting them. <laughs> with the shirt... Uh, no, they had to keep a low profile because l- lest they let on that they know that these guys are gunmen. Anyway, so they pull out their Uzis in the middle of a crowded aircraft in mid-flight and click, click, click. Ha, ha, ha. Too bad. <laughs> the, the, there are no firing pins in your guns, boys. Uh, Roadblock then <laughs> chastises them verbally, grabs their guns out of their hands, which incidentally transform from Uzis into what look like 45s. Okay, odd error there. And then makes them sit down in their seats with an old lady waving her walking stick at them saying, you two ought to be thoroughly ashamed of yourselves. I mean, these guys were about to offload very, very messy small arms in a closed quarters uh, environment in a pressurized aircraft cabin. And the best this lady can come up with is, you two ought to be thoroughly ashamed of yourselves. It's a little bit too tongue-in-cheek for my liking. It really kind of defeats the tone that Special Missions had set up up to this point. So they land at their destination on this commercial airliner and transfer into the G.I. Joe C-130. Never mind the fact that there are armed terrorists waiting outside the airport with a ladder and machine guns to then try and chase after the C-130. I mean, staggering coincidence that... We then cut to them refueling mid-air in the C-130. They happen to fly low over a Russian tank. Okay, okay. Which then radios an airfield, sending up a MiG-21. I mean, once again, staggering coincidence. Uh, The Joes evade the MiG in another series of staggering coincidences, one involving the MiG shooting the C-130 head-on, with its with its cannon and only hitting the nose cone and not Wild Bill and Slipstream in the cockpit, which very very lucky. <laughs> they evade this MiG-21 by dropping the cargo door and having Roadblock gun it down with his Mardus. The art during this dogfight section seems like the strongest in the issue because the rest of it is pretty slapdash and. You know, characters' proportions are off. The backgrounds are not not terribly strong. I don't know. So no. you're saying you don't like this right, issue? Yeah. I'm pretty much saying this is this is the weakest issue of of GI Joe Special Missions for this reader personally because, as I say, the action plays out rather clumsily. 
Uh, oh. Rather, coincidentally, I think is oh, the best true. word. <laughs> As I said before, special missions typically are parables. They have some kind of message that they'd like to get out as part of the reading experience. That it's always about sticking it to the man. And in this issue, it's basically talking about how uh, an ally that cannot be bought is a more valuable ally. Uh, this did not ring true to most uh, African states. The reason Roadblock is saying that an ally that can't be bought is a more useful ally is because the Prince of Kalingaland returns to his home country and immediately evicts both the uh, members of the Russian and the American consulates. Basically, he's like, we don't want your uh, intervention in the running of this government. We are going to either have a constitutional monarchy or a democracy, but we're going to have our own free and fair elections and not have any superpowers uh, meddling with that. Uh, I guess this is far too tragically a, a, a tale that is a bit, cuts a bit close to the bones of most African states because uh, similar things happened here and didn't wind up too well. Does that play in any part your, uh, it maybe hits a little close to home as far as the storytelling? Well, I think it becomes a bit too preachy. I think they set up this leader of Kalingaland as a bit of a Mary Sue, that he is not nearly as sophisticated and as real as I'd like him to be, because a lot of would-be African leaders returned from from uh, expensive educations abroad while their countries were in turmoil and returned out of exile to become the leaders of their nations and were an absolute disaster. So this guy, this king, uh, whatever his name is. <laughs> king Cooper. Prince... <laughs> <King> <laughs> yeah, he, he, he really is a... He, to my mind, he's a bit of a fall guy. I want him to be a little bit more ambiguous. But anyways, gents, that's my weakest, and you're welcome to jump in with your own uh, take on it. I agree. My biggest issues with this uh, issue, <laughs> I find a lot of the panels to be very empty. They suffer from the, just a character with a plain-colored background situation happening a lot. I understand it's an artistic choice, but but even when there are backgrounds, they seem very vague. Also, backgrounds are not the main character, I get that, but if you consider earlier issues, uh, earlier issues had gone through, you know, massive amounts of detail, swirling water, detailed jungles, that kind of thing. So, from an art point of view, I find that it's very lazily handled. Secondly, if you guys take a moment to look at the cover for this issue, where they're all um, surrounding this uh, pink dot, uh, as Stephen... <laughs> Yeah, as Stephen pointed uh, out some of its failings. Um, another one of its failings is that if you had to take the time to just draw these three central characters as a silhouette, the guy on the right looks like he has an epic pointing boner, which he's going to use to stab his attacker in the head, while his attacker is trying to shoot his balls because that M16 is shoved right up there. And it's just <laughs> bizarre. Uh, there's a horrible tangent between... Chuckles, uh, Chuckles' arm and the head of this uh, African leader. Uh, there's a funny tangent that happened there. I even had to double take now as Stephen was talking. I was just looking at the cover again. It's a very bad example of a ring around the rosy layout, which 
I uh, agree with Steve. Also sets it up to be a lackluster issue. Uh, and I hate to actually criticize Larry Harmer, but I actually found it a bit of a chore to read. I kind of read through it because I had to. And also because I it was in volume two, which I'd recently paid for and bought on Comixology. So I kind of felt a bit more obligated to push myself through it. But I just I honestly couldn't. It, it was an enjoyable read for me. So I just want to just uh, I just want to add some beef to Stephen's statement there because I don't feel that he is being nitpicky. I think he's I think he's been quite objective in saying that it's one of the weakest books in the run. I think you said it best when you said that it was quite a chore to read. There's just nothing particularly riveting about it. And I hate to say this, given that Special Missions is more about the plotting and the message, but it really would have been helped perhaps by a little bit more authentic G.I. Joe equipment. I mean, there's an awe striker and that's about it. Yeah, not interested. (laughs) All right. Next up, we have one of Robert's favorites. Oh, no. <laughs> no, it's my my your least, least favorite. Your least favorite, and that would be number mission number sixteen, entitled Tight Circle. It's a, it's a tight circle, but yeah, but, <laughs> that's what she said. <laughs> 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 so basically, my main reason why I don't like it is because it's an issue that connects to the main series, like it's an in between moment. Um. Because without having read those issues recently, like I have no connection to what's going on. Um, so Cobra is kind of like trying to double or like triple bluff G.I. Not, Joe. Not to derail us, but the what you just said about having no connection to anything is exactly how I felt about the new Star Wars movie. I'm just going to leave that in an encapsulated <laughs> statement. <laughs> we'll have to discuss that at length after. Sorry after. about that. because you you just summed it up like if they show you something but there's no context or there's you don't even know what's going on like it doesn't matter i suppose that's that's true but i mean it it's been 30 years for the characters since whatever has happened so we don't know everything so i imagine we can't get into it rob (laughs) another time brother (laughs) so anyway so it's a Star Viper. <laughs> <laughs> so the the Joes are basically yeah they they think Cobra's up to something and they're trying to discover what they're up to. So they send in all of their pilots to come and attack the island while while they have their stealth fighter kind of take pictures. Which in the end, it, you know, the twist is that um, Cobra. This is all a show, and Cobra was just trying to you know make sure that they got their stuff done. And if you want to know what's happening next, you've got to go to like one of the real G.I. Joe issues. So that's my, that's the biggest thing is that it's too connected to the main series and you can't, you can't enjoy it out of context, which is what special missions normally, you know, almost always is, is that it's disconnected. You don't have to read anything else. It's a short story. It's, you know, you read it and you're done. Who was on the active roster for that episode? It's, it's like all the pilots. So there's Wild Bull, there's um, Slipstream, there's the stealth pilot, who everyone <laughs> can't remember the name of. That's like a big thing near the, the, the start of the issue. Um, another pilot would be, I think it's Maverick. He's another one of the pilots kind of flying for the Joes. I mean, it's, it's kind of cool near the start of the issue. You get a feel for the, you know, the way that the different pilots on the Joe and the Cobra teams kind of what they do in their I, I, downtime. That's, that's another thing that I picked up about the special missions was it put, it put the team specialists together. 
Like you, yeah, you don't no, see that much, in the regular yeah. series too. So I mean, that 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 was another variation that, that yeah. felt. Yeah, it's cool. Special missions is cool because you get to see a lot of characters you that aren't normally featured. I mean, I like special missions also because Chuckles is in a lot of the lot of the issues. Um, Chuckles is kind of cool. He is Chuckles awesome. was a rising star at that time. Yeah, very much so. I mean, yeah. that's probably why he was eventually featured in the animated film as well. You know, because he's so awesome. Indeed. <laughs> so my second problem with this issue is that it features Cobra. <laughs> Which I think normally wouldn't be a problem, but for me it is. I like that the special missions, they, yeah, they're real world and they often deal with, yeah, the October Guard, the Russians, and, um, and then smaller factions which have their own issues um, and their own problems. And the Joes are kind of, it makes them more international, I think. Um, probably a reason why like uh, other people would enjoy this issue is because it features a lot of G.I. Joe vehicles. Um, you know, Joe and Cobra vehicles. So that that's a big positive. But they're all jets. And I like jets. I mean, I especially enjoy that G.I. <laughs> Joe issue with, you know, Ace versus Wild Weasel, you know, where they're kind of flying and they respect each other by the end of the issue. Shit. But in general, I find, yes, <laughs> I don't find jet combat in comics compelling. Um, I just don't think it translates very well onto the comic page. And I just can't it's, follow it and be interested in it. So that's one of my biggest problems. It's a big jet-heavy issue. And yeah, I don't, I don't like that. Gotcha. <laughs> With this mission, I find that it's kind of a um, a diet version of Shakedown. Oh, Showdown, rather. Uh, Shake, it is Shake, Shakedown. Well, on, I mean, I'm, I'm looking at it here. Yeah, I think it is actually titled... No, it's it's showdown in the skies. That's uh, special missions uh, issue five. Uh, we weren't talking about special missions. No, not special missions. It's a it's a main GI Joe issue where Ace and Wild uh, Weasel they go up against each other. I mean that that has been often copied. I think yeah in yeah as you said in special missions and then in this issue on a grand scale. Yeah, I just find that they hit some of the same notes, which bugged me a little bit because in showdown you've also got the uh, prelude. Uh, where you know you've got the Cobra guys and you've got the Night Raven pilot, uh, the Air Viper, and he's like chatting to everybody and doing his thing. And he's, I mean, the Strata Viper, and he's really being a bitch and whatever. And then you've got the Joes, and then Slipstream's like, "Oh, I got you, Jetfire," but unfortunately, it's the Chinese knockoff because he looks like Megatron. And art <laughs> error, come on, man. Yeah, it was it was out of package, so like. Of course, like, they've mixed up the names. Yeah. Fucking cheapskate G.I. Joes, man. Like, they... Oh. <laughs> Slipstream totally, like, bought it bargain basement style and didn't get the right name. That was yeah, a fucking exactly. Megatron toy. Anyways, if you, if you exactly. listeners have no idea what we're talking about, reread Special Missions number five, entitled Showdown. <laughs> that one. And Showdown was, like, for me, it's very sexy in how they deal with the air combat because it's not just panels full of planes. It's panels full of faces and tension. And and then the plane stuff, when it comes in, you know, you it's kind of like a reward. Um, but once again, it, it has a moral thing, and it's got, you know, these sort of... It's trying to show the, the parallels between Cobra and G.I. Joe, and I think it does it superbly. Um, I'm a big fan of it, actually. And I just feel that this issue that... Uh, Rob's talking about tight circle tries to hit the same notes, but they're a lot flatter. And um, I don't really care 
uh, halfway through the issue, I also find that I, I stop caring uh, because the dogfight actually starts becoming superfluous. Like, it kind of gets a bit like, okay, <laughs> is this plane and that plane zipping around? And then my brain is just going, that plane and that plane wouldn't really meet each other in an aerial theater. And yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> but yeah, sorry. Yeah, uh, so basically, it's boring. I, I found it boring. You did say one of your criticisms was that it was Cobra. Whereas you you preferred the more uh, real world international intrigues of the, the the typical villains in special missions, am I am I right? Yeah. In, in some yeah, no, that's true. In general, I, I I prefer that. I like seeing them go up against. Where also you you can't essentially predict who's going to survive because with named characters you you, you know they're going to make it out. But I'd I'd venture to say that just to just to juxtapose it with the issue that I selected as my weakest, where there was no definable enemy at all. There were just mm-hmm. gunmen, just random gunmen trying to assassinate this African prince. That that is the most boring plot device of all. Yeah, no, have, that's the at other least with extreme. Cobra, we we know we know what their motivations are. We have some sense yes. for character there. I mean, that's why the the regular series is more accessible. And I mean, that's like why when uh, when I read the special missions when I was a kid, uh, as I'm a couple years older than you gents, I, I didn't really get it because, like you said, it was like faceless villains, and I was like, eh, I'm not calling it a strength now. But when you're when you're fighting somebody that you don't know who it is. You, you focus more on the relationships in the team. And, and I, that's another thing. I think Kama took mo- a more personal approach to like real battle dialogue. M- maybe not heavy handed as it is, but, but yeah, I, I don't know if that was on purpose or not. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Well, some of the more interesting special missions is, yeah, as I, for me, this is when they are not Cobra, but they kind of, they do tend to develop some of the villainous bad guys. Do you guys, after reading Special Missions, do you have more or less a different amount of respect for the October Guard? Do you have a different feeling about them? I read the issue where they died only very recently, and I I, I welled up a little bit. What, what issue like, is that? Oh, it's in the fourth volume. It's towards the end of the Special Missions series. Uh, Colonel Brekhoff, Horror Show... Schrange and uh oh man I can never remember all of them uh but four of the founding members perish leaving only Dana and Dragonovsky I've not read that one yet yeah man they they perish it's it is very sad and they they I mean very vividly perish saving the lives of of their their other teammates and their objective. Uh, they were rescuing a, a head of state, I believe, or the leader of a revolutionary movement to try and win his faction over to their way of life and, and trying to install a communist regime in that nation. But... I mean, that's a theme uh, that was revisited from the first episode. Absolutely. It's always huh. been perhaps the, the, the view of special missions specifically to show different political lenses. You know, on the one hand, the USSRs, on the other hand, the, the US, and right down the middle, you have, you have Cobra, and they're, uh, they're completely sort of selfish goals. I mean, they don't represent a nation, they represent greed, and warmongering, and economic destabilization. You know, that's their ballgame. 
To answer your question, Cujo, absolutely. It gave me a firm love for the October God, more so than the main series did. Just to cap off your issue number 16, Rob, there is a letter from issue number 20's letter page that surmises issue 16 as follows. Dear Joes, dogfights, dogfights, dogfights. Is that all this comic is going to be? If that is the case, I suggest you call it G.I. Joe, dogfights. You've had 16 (laughs) issues so far, and at least five of them have been given over to this often used tired device. Can you not think up something new? Anyway, that was from Erdley Wilmot from Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Well, excellent. That definitely summarizes my feelings about this. Let's hear from Paul and his best issue, number 19. Can I I derail us just one second? Yes, please. You already have. Uh, Oh, oh my God. No, I I did want to uh, allude to the Strato Viper that Paul mentioned, and Stephen mentioned it in an earlier cast, his relationship with his ground crew and and then the contrast with the G.I. Joe and their pilots. It was fun to kind of listen because I hadn't read that. And then I I remembered Stephen mentioning it like uh, a few months back. And I was like, I was like, oh, that's what he was talking about. So that that was kind of cool to uh, see the Strato Viper uh, get his on special missions. Oh, yeah, I love it. Um, yeah, it, as well it's definitely cool to have that. You know, you kind of get the feeling of, oh, these guys are good guys. These are good bad guys. And, oh, the breakout tool. Oh, you better throw that away. Okay. <laughs> nice. <laughs> nice. How do we ever get anything done? <laughs> Contrasted with uh, Cobra Commanders, I don't really like Star Viper anyway. You know? Yeah, I was really <laughs> happy that he's dead. Yeah, because I've got a metal suit now and I'm just full of shit. <laughs> <laughs> So now we Please. come to do Paul's favorite issue. Issue, issue 19, mission getting there. 19. Yeah. Okay, so I'm just going to preface this by saying that this has been very difficult for me, as it always is. I struggle with selecting just one thing. Getting there is an issue, when I started reading it, I didn't for one second think this was going to be my favorite issue um, until it ended. And it's because, as the title aptly states, it's, it's about getting there. Before I get there, I just want to just mention a few uh, notables for myself from earlier issues. I really loved uh, issue 13, which I thought was amazing. It was uh, Dusty and Lightfoot and uh, sort of unnamed Joe kind of surviving in the desert. It, it's kind of very Lawrence of Arabia-esque, I suppose, uh, where it's just these three guys sort of trying to get through there. And they've got a lot of odds. One of the biggest obstacles is one of their own who keeps moaning and is, is very negative and very full of shit. And eventually... His character changes. I really, really enjoyed that. That was almost my favorite issue. Incidentally, uh, in a very dark series, Form BX257 lists Washout, that issue, as probably the darkest of the lots, since it deals with a Joe, or not even, a sort of probationary near Joe, uh, sacrificing himself for the team. It deals with Lightfoot being tortured, and basically rendered immobile for the rest of the issue. It's a very, very adult and visceral issue. A uh, very stark one. And and uh, what I loved about it is that it, it's definitely, it's very army. It's very military because, you know, the idea is that you, you have these team, you meet these strangers and you train together and you go through the same shit together and then you deal with the same shit together and, and eventually you don't become best friends, but you kind of become different parts of the same body you kind of become a, a bigger organism. So when one of those organisms starts to fail, the whole uh, squad feels that. 
and that hurts the morale. And when somebody like Lightfoot takes a takes a beating the way he does, there's a lot of trauma. There's a lot of there's a lot of things going in there. So I like it because it's kind of a struggle of three um, men kind of going into uh, into hell, so to speak, and and kind of going getting through that and uh, dealing with the loss of a stranger. Well, I like that because for me that could be put into a movie. I just wanted to bring attention to uh, Trimpy's uh, artwork on the desert trek. You mentioned it, but I, I really enjoyed page 18, or Sundown, Let's Go. That's, that's a good page. Oh, yeah. Nice I mean, work. there's lots of gems in that issue, definitely. I mean, another thing, another very cool issue that I liked quite a bit as well that almost made it, I decided not to because it would have sounded a bit uh, too much for the time, but I kind of, I really enjoyed um, Mission 11. Because Mission 11 had a lot to deal with. It's a very delicate situation going in there, dealing with a, a sort of a hostage situation. And it's very, it's like very volatile. It's something that the military is not normally tasked with dealing with. But Joe's been called in to deal with this uh, situation. And then the ladies in the group, they're actually the ones who go and put themselves uh, in the crosses of this. And I thought it was for its time. If I look at it now and I look, you know, through the veils of time. It's quite a progressive issue. It says a lot um, about what G.I. Joe was trying to do for, for women. Um, because I'm not saying that Larry Homer went and wrote out fully fleshed out female characters and they're so great and whatever because so many comic books were putting damsels in distress to have men rescue them later. But it is great to have this issue where the three damsels put themselves in distress and then managed to get themselves out of it. And it was quite a tense situation. I mean, somebody as, as specialized and as well-trained as Scarlet nearly gets taken out. That kind of thing. And I enjoyed it. I also love uh, Larry Homer's sense of humor and Herb Trimpey's sense of humor in making the first page of this uh, comic book. The terrorist holding the hostage looks a lot like the Unabomber, which I thought was quite a nice touch. But I enjoyed this. This, uh, this book reads a lot like a spy, kind of a spy story. It's, uh, it's got a bit of a Tom Clancy vibe, which I quite dig. Were you not a little bit uh, disappointed with the pencils? I was. I felt that the artwork could have been a bit stronger, especially because the story is quite cool and the whole chase and everything. Uh, there are some hokey moments in there, but I felt that the artwork could have been stronger, especially for the ladies. I mean, they're not drawn that well. They made one or two mistakes with Jinx. If I have a criticism about it, and that's why it didn't become my favorite, it's because... Jinx being a Rashikage and being trained the way she has and also being played up as somebody who can fight when her eyes are covered. She didn't pair too well when she was blindfolded in this issue, which I thought was a bit silly considering what she is. So, yeah, but, you know, things happen. But now that we've got there uh, to issue 19, getting there has got a very similar sense to issue 13 in that it's also about a bunch of guys that have to work together to get to a certain place doing something that seems quite rudimentary. What it ends up being is a uh, hundred miles of bad road where they pretty much end up having to deal with every obstacle they could, you know, that they could have sort of come up with in the scenario. And they have to survive and they have, they have to think. Yeah, you got Muskrat and Repeater trying to, you know, save off this uh, enemy hind attack from the sides of the, of the Tomahawk. And, you know, it's all kinds of stuff that, you know, they know that wouldn't really work, but they're going to try it anyway because they are at their wit's end and they have to get there. And I enjoyed it because for me, this would also make a very cool film. It would make a very good movie because you could start the movie off with, you know, the, the guys that are waiting for them in a hot zone and how desperate the situation is to get there. And I knew from having read previous issues that 
this situation was quite intense and and I had a feeling that that's where they were going um but you don't really know and that's the thing that I loved about it because it really sold itself well as a classified mission they didn't really know where they were going they just knew, knew that they had a lot of fuel and they had to get there and you as a reader were in the same boat as them and they had to get there and they had to do their thing and everybody's very chilled and this is very routine you know and then all of a sudden the wheels start coming off and and then they're up against the Russians, you know, again. And this is very real. Okay, so what I like about it is we're not dealing with Cobra Forces again. We're dealing with, you know, the October Guard or at least a, a portion of it. And you're seeing sort of both sides make their mistakes. I personally don't believe that some of these maneuvers would work in a real world scenario. But they made for compelling read for me. I won't let reality get in the way of a good story here. But... uh Little moments, little things that I enjoyed about this were just the, the characterization, getting shot through the sh- shoulder, lifeline jumping in to save, um, to try and save Muskrat. If I have a criticism for this issue in particular, it's that most of this is sort of happening in the sort of darker hours of the morning, and there's very little to let you know that, because some panels are very light blue versus other panels which are quite purple. And I thought maybe a slightly stronger art direction in some of those moments would have made for a sort of would have anchored it a bit in terms of its timeline and what's actually happening, what time it's actually happening in. That's a weird one for me, man, because they so totally nailed time of day in the coloring in like issue eight. Like when it was darkness and the Dakota cargo plane that the Joes are flying in is is all silhouetted in black and we see very little detail. Like perfectly handled the way they handled dawn and the time of day shifting to sort of midday and the heat of the morning like all of that is plotted so well so in getting there when we've got a beautiful blue background sky like a light sky blue and we're supposed to take it for granted that it's nighttime that really really bugs the shit out of me but it's got a tomahawk in it, so <laughs> I love that issue. Yeah, it's a cool issue because it's kind of the adventures of the tomahawk. We actually get to see the tomahawk doing some cool aerial maneuvers. We get an idea of how much space it actually has inside because of the barrels. I mean, Lift Ticket and, and Wild Bull are by no means favorite characters of mine, but I enjoy the interactions here between the two of them. Lifeline, I would say in this whole issue... With the exception of the ending, my favorite character in this is Lifeline, not because he does anything that's particularly awesome in this issue, aside from negotiating with those uh, pirates. For their compass. Hmm. Yeah, getting the compass, but I just, he's the only Joe here that I'm, I'm a big fan of. I mean, Repeater is a cool toy, but I don't know much about the Joe, and Muskrat has never been a, a character that I care about that much either, and, and know about. So, you know, it, it's kind of weird for me to, to enjoy this book so much, where... So many of the characters are just not favorites of mine. But I, I, I think that's kind of what sold it to me a little bit. It's just that uh, it's, a, it's not Snake Eyes, it's not Scarlet, it's not Duke, it's not Chuckles, it's not Roadblock. It's, it's the guys, it's the drivers, it's the, it's the dudes that, you know, we kind of, we kind of take an airlift for granted. And this kind of opened my eyes. It, it made me realize, hey, you know what? Sometimes these little pickups that I set up when I'm playing with my toys might be a little bit more dangerous than I initially thought they would be, you know? Am I wrong in thinking that Lifeline does some kind of Aikido moves? And is that not the discipline that you study as well? 
Uh, I don't study Aikido, if you want to break it down. I study a Shaolin style of, of Kung Fu. It sort of incorporates different elements of the different Chinese martial arts. But Aikido is a very, very useful form. And the goal of Aikido is pacifism, as is actually most martial arts, is to learn about yourself. But Lifeline, as far as I know, is adept at Aikido. I just can't remember him doing anything Aikido-esque. Not in this issue, at least, but in Special Missions number four. Oh, yeah. When he has to believe. survive, yeah. Well, when he takes on horror show, basically schools his ass with <laughs> nice. Aikido cool. technique. <laughs> Trampy doesn't seem to glorify physical violence in his artwork. I mean, the physical kind of melee combat that Trampy draws is, is kind of stiff. It's very different to what you see in Marvel. Uh, yeah, right, because right, right. the punches are not heroic. They are punches. They're not being played up too much. Something I'm sure you guys have tripped over these quite a few times in the special missions issues, and I've got to mention them because I always get a good laugh out of them, as I'm sure you maybe you guys did. But um, on one of the panels in this getting there in this issue, uh, it's a bottom right panel. It's the two uh, Russian uh, pilots. They're hiding behind bushes and. The first one starts off with, He's putting out fire. The capitalist adventurous pirates are going to steal our ship. <laughs> I love that stuff from Larry Harmer. He always throws in these crazy subtitles with these guys. And it's in Ring of Fire as well, I think it is. Is it Ring of Fire where the Chinese guys are like the neo-fascist American dogs of war or capitalist dogs <laughs> of war or something? And yeah, even those. in Steven's worst issue yeah they're like kill the running dogs of the imperialist puppet masters i enjoy Ooh, that so those them's fighting words <laughs> you calling me out man you name calling <laughs> i love it i find it so humorous because it's definitely Homer just giving you a chance to just you know sort of have a bit of a chuckle to yourself and you know if you don't get it you don't get it yeah i'm afraid i found them as funny as a rusty crutch i mean it's just it's not funny. I suppose the humor is is more ironic. I mean, it's not it's not it's not a funny insult. He's not trying to be slapsticky and be like, "Oh, that was so funny. That was so clever." It was more like, "Wow, do Russians really cuss people like that?" Oh, well, that's the whole thing. <laughs> they're so they're so drilled by the rhetoric of the party. That yes. like when they when they want to insult an American, it's like, "You running in Imperialist, adventurous, running dog slime. Yeah, as you gotta say, I, I think I like to call them Soviet haikus. I mean, they do serve a purpose in the story, aside from, you know, whether you get joy out of them or not. They do serve a, as, and Stephen actually highlighted it quite well. That's exactly what they do. They do serve to highlight that characteristic of, of the uh, all, Soviet guys here. <laughs> that they're yeah. all miserably unfunny, really. Yes, <laughs> and that they, they're miserably unfunny and they, you know, that G.I. Joe is supposed to be fighting for freedom of a land and sea and air. And these guys, you know, their idea of freedom is not the same as ours. You know, our freedom is a lot more rock and roll than theirs is, clearly. <laughs> so getting there was, was probably my, my favorite. Yeah, another one that came up was, uh, was issue 20. But I'm not going to talk about that because it's not mine to talk about in this episode. Yes, it's mine. Issue number 20, entitled Snowblind. 
is my favorite issue of Special Missions. And that might jar a few, because, I mean, it doesn't seem to top anyone else's list. But in a series of comic books that are so objectively good, I decided to select my favorite based purely on subjective grounds. This was the first issue of Special Missions that I had in my personal possession way back when. I must have been, I don't know, eight or nine years old. I picked it up at a, a cafe on the corner for a whole two rand fifty. It's still got its price tag <laughs> stuck to it. Two rand fifty back then was about seventy-five US cents. Two rand fifty now is about twenty-five US cents. If that. World economy. Oh no, yeah, it's probably about fifteen cents. <laughs> so my comic book is devaluing with age, I guess. Good times. You know. But the reason why I like this issue so much as a child was because I could actually play out the action on the page with my action figures. On the cover itself, we have two cobra wolves. The pilots in the one in the foreground are an ice viper that the, the cobra wolf came with and a toxo viper. And in the immediate foreground, we have... A Joe that I wasn't familiar with as a child, a guy called Snowjob, who's kind of synonymous okay, yeah. <laughs> with uh, G.I. Joe's snow missions, and he's dropping a explosive charge, uh, if the smoke is anything to go by, onto this wolf. It's a very action-packed and exciting cover, sets up a lot of motion and excitement. It's, I'd say, I suppose, a textbook example of how to do an action cover without guns blazing everywhere because it's the expression on the ice viper's face that really says it all this guy knows the score and he's freaking the fuck out but coming back to why this issue became so exciting for me as a child was because i had these toys man i had a cobra wolf i had the ice viper i had the toxo viper and while i did not have a snow cat i had a perfectly usable tiger sting and Avalanche, Iceberg, and Sub-Zero to man it. So mm-hmm. I could effectively play out the events of this issue in my room. Except it wasn't ever snowing in South Africa, but that's besides the point. I clenched my eyelids very close together and it looked like a whiteout. You know? Yeah, you could always pretend your, your duvet was snow. You know? it's the icy tundra. Nice. Exactly right. Wrinkle, I, wrinkle up some blankets, gentlemen. I did oh, cut man. you off, though, Kujo. Go ahead, man. Oh, not at all, brother. I'm just admiring this cover as you were. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I I think it's funny that the Toxo Viper has his helmet on, but you don't get to see too many people draw the Toxo Viper. And also, you get to see a Techno Viper in this, which is kind of one of the sexier figures that never gets used. Agreed. And also a figure that I had some personal familiarity with. I need to keep coming back to the point that the South African members of this podcast came a little late to the party, so it was the later G.I. Joe figures that we really had a familiarity with. So I recognized Avalanche immediately, but Frostbites, the Snowcats, and Snowjob were unfamiliar to me. But what else makes this issue so impressive beyond just my own personal enjoyment of playing it out with my action figures? It kind of formed... Part of my education uh, on late Cold War, there were terms that I had to ask my dad about in this comic book, like glasnost, 
you know, the, the sort of end of the Cold War, the sort of final stages where the US and USSR's relations were increasingly less strained. Negotiations and talks were being held, and I mean, it was part of a process of, of ending the Cold War. This issue had a very important factor playing into it, which not many other issues of special missions had, and certainly very few of the regular run of G.I. Joe had, and that was the weather. The weather formed such a crucial element to the storytelling. It basically went from a clear day between Alaska and the USSR, and very quickly plunged into whiteout conditions, which made the sort of very vehicular-based conflicts between the two sides, or three sides, in fact, the Cobra Wolves, the Russians, and the G.I. Joes, seem a lot more like naval combat than land combat. There was a lot of strategy being employed, because visibility was down to zero. They were kind of playing a very strategic cat-and-mouse game in uh, complete zero-vis. So that was integral to the plotting of the issue, and that was very exciting. Once again, translating to a new way of playing with my G.I. Joe toys, which was less stand-up-and-fight and more suspenseful, and like trying to locate the heat signature of your target through a complete uh, dense white out of snow. That's a great point to illuminate. I didn't even think about that because uh, kind of we've been building toward the point that this is like more of an ambiguous type of warfare. You don't have uh, battlefields like Cobra Island or the Pit or Springfield. Like these are these are vehicle battlefields that are kind of revolving, whether they're boats or or you know snow blinds or whatever. I, I didn't really consider that nice. Vehicles are always going to be a firm favorite of mine, man. They allow for a greater deal of technical detail to be exposed in the comic book. And that's something that I really just poured over as a child. I mean, I, I chronicled the kind of equipment that each of these vehicles contained. It was always such a big draw card for me. The blueprints was a firm favorite of mine. It would, it would always entrench the exactly how real-world and, and technologically advanced this equipment was. But uh, as far as the technical details exposed in this particular issue that I clung to as a child, the Cobra Wolves had a centralized targeting computer, which would kind of dictate where each of them would uh, fire in order to avoid overlaps. I mean, the first action set piece is a group of five Cobra Wolves assaulting an entire column of Russian ice tanks, basically, and completely destroying all of them except the lead one, which is obviously manned by the October Guard. So this kind of sophisticated targeting computer of the Wolves added value to my toy. Uh, which is always exciting. The ski missiles used by the G.I. Joes have microprocessors that could uh, discriminate the thermal image of a vehicle as opposed to a flare. So, you know, very sophisticated homing devices that could kind of defeat countermeasures. And speaking of countermeasures, uh, something that always kind of was a, a watchword for me was ECM. Uh, so electronic countermeasures used to jam uh, enemy frequencies and communications. This was something that was also integral to Cobra's plan. They wanted to completely stop G.I. Joe and the October Guard from being able to call in air support or uh, additional uh, vehicle support. So like basically creating a, a complete uh, cloud of confusion uh, over their enemies. And also what became quite clear in this issue 
was the difference between infrared imaging and radar detection systems. That infrared worked according to locking onto heat sources, whereas radar, you'd be able to track someone on radar if they had their own radar switched on. But something that strikes me as odd as an adult now is these ground vehicles had radar? Weird. I mean, surely they wouldn't be able to pick up much unless they were on extremely flat terrain. Because radar is effectively line of sight, as far as I can tell. They would need an AWACS, like something to give them, to relay uh, that kind of information to them. Well, it made it sound like uh, the the snowcats, and for that matter, the cobra wolves, had their own radar. <laughs> anyway, yeah. who knows? It's possible, I guess. Mm. If they had a little, little radar rotating around on top of them. Which they don't, but... I don't know. For the for the purposes of the comic book, they have infrared and radar. <laughs> is is one of the Battle Force members uh, part of the team? That's correct. Yes, Avalanche was part of the team, and I actually owned that action figure. So Avalanche joined forces with uh, my Iceberg and Sub Zero in lieu of the Beard Force, <laughs> aka Frostbite <laughs> and Snowjob. Probably about the only time that Battle Force gets respect in the comic. Uh, I don't Hell know. yeah! Are, are they- are they in that many comics? No, no. They have a few featured moments. This is one of the very few times where you see a Battle Force 2000 member working outside of his uh, indigenous environment, that being the Battle Force 2000 team and their wacky vehicles. In this one, he's strictly brought on as, I guess, a, a technical um, co-pilot to the Snowcat crew, which added value to the snowcat in my mind because all of a sudden it wasn't just a vehicle, a half-track with missiles on top. It needed to be crewed by, by more than one person. It wasn't just a vehicle that was driven by frostbites and you could put 10 other Joes on the outside. Yeah, You needed a, a, a Battle Force 2000 guy to man the sophisticated detection equipment to basically succeed in this game of outmaneuver under white-hot conditions. That's just Hama sinking his teeth into the technical stuff again. Well, Avalanche, being a member of the Battle Force 2000, made the perfect sense as that guy to be in the sort of the co-pilot seat, as it were. And it certainly made my adventures with my action figures that much more interesting because all of a sudden these guys had something to talk about. They weren't just like, yeah, let me just cram random Joes into the seats of my, my Tiger Sting and have them trundle off and hunt down cobra wolves. It was like, okay, Avalanche, do you think you can line up the shot if we if we get past the snowdrift, and uh, will you be able to pick them up on radar, or should we wait for them to light up their engines so we can see them on the infrared? Uh, how do we get into position without giving away our position? Like, that kind of strategy became so integral to my to my games. But the most exciting moment of this comic book, and one that I replayed time and time again, was the deployment of the snowcats. Oh, I love how it's being deployed. pulled out of the back of the C-130 in a very low altitude parachute ejection system run. So cool! Is fucking rad. And the line that that I think Snowjob snaps back when they land on the snow <laughs> is. Hilarious and very adult. I only got it rereading this comic book recently because I never got it as a child. But like yeah. uh, <laughs> Snowjob says, as they've sort of just uh, 
been ejected from the back of a, a C-130's mm-hmm. uh, cargo ramp. He says, I can think of some pretty nasty analogies for what we just did. And then uh, first part's like, I bet you can, it's no job. Yeah, and I think we can all, we can all imagine what, uh, you know, basically being ejected out of the ass of an aircraft, uh, what the analogy that Snowjob is thinking of, for that matter. Uh, no great issue can go without a few nitpicks. Airborne, I don't think they've ever gotten him right since, like, maybe 1985. Like, his, his uniform's never colored correctly, hysterically so. And this is not the only issue of the G.I. Joe comic books that, that this is the case. But they call him Airborne, so I guess at least you're getting the name in there. So, yeah, it's, it's Airborne, even if he's unrecognizable. They do tend to switch up the Toxo Vipers and the Techno Vipers a fair deal. Sometimes someone is referred to as a Toxo Viper in the speech bubbles, but it's actually drawn as a Techno Viper and vice versa, which is very forgivable because if you're sifting through a box of toys and Harmer says to Trimpy, yeah, it's the purple one. Just draw the purple one. <laughs> They're both purple. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, the one, one is easily substituted. Yeah, one is easily substituted for the other one. Snowjob, another, like, I suppose you couldn't really call it an error, but if you think about it too hard, you're likely to blow a fuse. Snowjob at one point does what the cover basically depicts in skiing past a wolf and placing a shaped charge on its hull. Now, unless he's got like a rocket booster shoved up his tunic, he's got some mad pace on those skis on what is effectively a flat piece of terrain. I mean, it's not like they were fighting on a mountain slope. This is Alaska. It's it's rather flat and rather open. And so he's just zooming past the, the Cobra Wolf uh, after having placed the shape charge on its hull. And uh, <laughs> where did he get that pace from, man? Did he find a nice nice long run-up? And trundle down. Anyone who's seen cross-country skiers know that these guys, like, they have to just pole themselves across open stretches of flat terrain. Yeah. Snow job can create momentum out of nowhere. His ass. Yeah, he's, he's snow job. <laughs> Literally. That's right. <laughs> but uh, snow job is probably one of the more criticized uh, names in the GI Joe game. I mean, don't they have like a, a robot chicken episode where they make fun of him? <laughs> well, you. Mainly for being a, a bit out of place as the, the only guy dressed in white in the line at the time. I could go on about this issue for a long time because it's the most read issue of Special Missions that I own. And maybe even the most read issue of G.I. Joe that I have. So this is way up there. And I, I don't imagine everyone uh, has that opinion of this issue, but I freaking love it. Uh, so I, I rest my case. It's incidentally also the first time I ever uh, had any familiarity with the Terradrome. I had no idea that this was actually a toy at the time. But like, Cobra having a, a subterranean base that rises out of the, the ice flow? Cool. I, I find that this issue's cover is one of the finest covers in G.I. Joe period. And I'm talking about the classic run, because I haven't seen every co- a cover for the modern run. This cover has always stuck with me, so when I got Volume 3... And I saw that this issue was inside. I, I got very excited. I think I actually read this issue before reading anything else. So, yeah. I mean, and, and you've got a Cobra action. Wolf. <laughs> and I got a Cobra Wolf. And I got a Snow Cat. And I have Snow Job. And I have an Ice Viper. And a Toxo Viper. Oh, my oh, yeah. word. Yeah, I know, right? Um, just, just quickly about toys here. 
Uh, Special Missions has definitely told me that as a G.I. Joe uh, toy person, um, <laughs> that I need to seriously get myself a C-130 or something a lot like it because, yeah, seems like Joe uses those quite a bit when they're not in the main line, <laughs> in the main run of the comic. I'm afraid fans have been clamoring for that particular toy forever, and I don't know if we're any closer to getting it. Certainly not one that can accommodate a snowcat in its hold. Yeah, no, too true. But the TRU uh, Soldiers something something one is actually pretty cool. Um, I happen to also like their submarine. But anyway. <laughs> Weirdo. Next up, we've got another stinker. Uh, this time it's Paul's least favorite issue, number 21. At this point, uh, we've spoken quite a bit about what we love in Special Missions and that we love it being kind of real world and that we love that... We get to see, well, we haven't really touched on it that much, but we love seeing uh, underutilized characters being put in the special mission. So it's great to see guys like, you know, Muskrat, who you might not be a fan of, appear in, in an issue. Or, you know, characters like Lightfoot, who, you know, when your aunt got him for you for your birthday and you were, like, really disappointed, you now have a reason to think he's cool because of special missions um, 11. So when you come to Special Missions 21 and you've got characters like Spearhead, eh, Tunnel Rat, hell yeah, and Airtight, for me is cool, but for some people it's also, eh, and you put them in this kind of situation, you think, okay, cool, this could be quite a cool issue because there's Tunnel Rat and, and all that. Anyway, so this issue starts off pretty well. I thought um, they're in the tunnels um, under New York and they're busy looking for bombs and they find Cobra and, you know, we got Xandar who's also underutilized um, a lot in the book. And they find some vipers, and there's a bit of a gunfight anyway. And they chase them off, and then they find some cool subterranean uh, sort of, uh, like, a retreat, like kind of like a like a bordello kind of situation where um, obviously lots of rich people used to come here and do all kinds of fun culty things or just go there to drink to hide from the prohibition laws, whatever. And and it's really awesome. And then you turn the page, and then it's a bunch of like homeless people throwing bottles at them, and a very angry ex-veteran. And then it just for me it starts falling apart because then you got Road Pig eating donuts, and and then it starts becoming like regular run of GI Joe. And I'd almost you love Road Pig. <laughs> I do like Road Pig. I think Road Pig's great. I just um, oh Paul, you love everything. <laughs> I don't love everything. I'm not a big fan of. Well, I don't want to get into what I don't like, but anyway. Um, well, not this issue, clearly. Yeah, I don't like this issue. Um, I'm not saying Road Pig is bad. I'm just saying, you know, we've got Road Pig, and then we've got, you know, Serana, and and throughout the whole fucking issue, Charles Broyles reading some kind of tra- travel guide, which irritates the shit out of me. But what I was going to say is that, that this issue starts getting very hokey. This issue specifically feels very Sunbow for me, and I don't like that um, for this issue um, I actually haven't read it to the end, mostly because I got disinterested and I actually felt this was just, it was just irritating me and I couldn't actually finish it. I do feel that Hammer tried to get one or two points about veterans across. Uh, he definitely delivers quite a strong thing where I think it's uh, Spearhead that quips this veteran about, you know, how the country, how the government actually didn't sell him out. You know, he kind of sells himself out. Our listeners, you guys can do the due diligence and read it and see what you think. But I personally don't think that this is a very strong issue. I think uh, art-wise, there's some cool stuff happening, uh, to be fair. 
And I love seeing uh, Tunnel Rat being utilized in a book. I also enjoy seeing Airtight being used. I am going to nitpick. The first page of this has them opening up with uh, two rats in the foreground on a toxic barrel. The water is literally fizzling and bubbling around these barrels. And you've got Airtight who's geared up for this mission. You've got Charbroil who I imagine, I imagine his clothing is kind of resistant. But um, Spearhead and Tonorad are going to have some seriously itchy legs. I mean, they don't know what kind of gunk they're in here. And it's clearly toxic. It's clearly toxic, like, in a bad way toxic. And um, these guys are just not the right kind of guys to go in here. I think the only guy that's actually qualified to, to walk into this environment is Airtight. And I would imagine that having somebody as responsible as Airtight on this team, he would have suggested hazmat suits or something similar for them to all wear. I understand why they do it. But none of them are wearing helmets or any kind of breathing protection or any, you know, it's it's just, it's like, it's really messed up. You got this very hazardous sewers environment and it's dangerous. And then, well, I wouldn't mind seeing like Tunnel Rat mutate into like a Ninja Turtle. Well, you know, that's the whole thing. I think this, I think this issue somehow does play up on Ninja Turtles a bit uh, because of the sewer shenanigans. Oh, dude, um, he spent so much time down there that like he's immune. <laughs> mm. I can't get any more of that shit. I already got it all. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I mean, I can relate to that kind of thing. And I just find there's just so many inconsistencies in this issue. Uh, and like I said, I was really enjoying it. And then I turned the page to uh, like homeless guys throwing bottles at them and stuff. And I just felt this is going on the wrong side of, of special missions. You know, this would be a great... Uh, episode in the sunbow run but this is not something that i think belongs here even somehow got a, a, a milk truck down here it's just, it's, it's nuts dude it's, it's almost as as awesome as um what's his face uh, i want to say deep six but it's not deep six it's almost as awesome as torpedo in full wetsuit uh, uh replete with flippers and spear gun in one of the earlier issues of gi joe when they oh, still wow. when they, yeah, when they're protecting that uh, embassy mm, building. I think it's, it's called just... Night Attack. <laughs> oh, my lord. Yeah, they're defending the Mint, I think, where they make mm. money. Dr. Venom is assaulting it, and so you have Torpedo complete with flippers and well, spear gun. Just in case spear gun. somebody and, and needs breathing. help out of the fountain or something. <laughs> For our dear listeners, just find that I I did not enjoy this issue. Um, not because it's terrible, uh, not because it's really awful. Just because I feel that it's it's misplaced. It's a it's a blemish on an otherwise perfect, uh, well, you know, ass that is GI Joe Special Missions. Well, yes, yes, and no, Paul. I mean, we've all managed to weed out a stinker each, but none of us have made reference to the two non Larry Harmer written issues. And I think we collectively left them out of consideration because of that fact. But they are actually the turkeys of the special mission series. The first being issue 24, Ladies' Day, which is actually written by the artist, Herb Trimpey. But, I mean, it clearly just... It was basically like an episode of the cartoon. It had a very light-hearted nature to it. I mean, at one point, I think CoverGirl takes up a baseball bat and has hardball lob a grenade at her that she then bats into the Cobra blimp over the stadium. I mean, it's just it's just all kinds of wacky and really lighthearted and not very special missions-esque. And the other stinker, 
that we weren't really going to get into a discussion of was issue number 27 called Mexican Holiday, which, oh my word, uh, where to begin? This guy didn't really have a handle on any of the characters at all. For instance, in the middle of a mission, Stalker's going on a date, lounging around at the pool on holiday, essentially, diving off the, the, the high board. What issue is that? I think it was issue 27. Mm. So it was, late, it was late in the run, huh? Absolutely. It kind of reads like an episode of Magnum P.I. or uh-huh. Miami Vice, maybe. Although I think Miami Vice even succeeded in having a more serious tone than this this particular issue. But yeah, just not very G.I. Joe at all. When Master Hammer steps off the, the creative team, like, you're the either going to... come off pretty quickly. They do, they do. Other writers just don't have a handle for it like he does. And, you know, how could they? To just defend sort of the casual staff, the backup crew, I mean, how could another writer really get as inside the heads of these characters that... That Harmer completely built from the ground up. Yeah, I mean, you never know what the bullpen is like as well for them, like how it, how they set up the stories. If you know, it, it could have been a situation of this was Harry, uh, Larry Harmer's island, and he, you know, and I think Tom DeFalco uh, was the editor at that time. I think him and Harmer probably had a, an understanding, and he kind of left it to that side of the camp. So, you know, it wasn't X Men or Spider Man or Fantastic Four or. Um, Secret Wars or any of that stuff, so it wasn't really brought up into the sort of uh, upper echelons of of Marvel, you know, discussions. Yeah, so I mean, issues twenty four and twenty seven were soft targets; they were just a bit too easy. Hence, <laughs> we all threw our darts elsewhere on the board. Issue number twenty four, Ladies' Day, is notable for a number of things, though. Uh, while we are on the topic of of the the unmentionables. Uh, it has an unmasked Firefly. So if you've ever wanted to know what Firefly looks like... <laughs> you think you think you could post that on Twitter? You got it, buddy. I'll even post him nice, throwing uh, throwing exploding hot dogs. <laughs> Good, man. But like, I'd actually like to see it, that. Just put in a disclaimer there, because, you know, Firefly kills anybody who sees his real face, and I'd hate for our listeners to... Well, he'll, he'll lob an exploding frankfurter at them, as he does in the comic book. I'd hate for them to be 86 by, uh, by Firefly, you know? So, uh... The faceless one is now on Twitter. Oh, yeah. We're going to close out this show on a bang, because we're finishing with one of our favorites... And this one is none other than Roberts. Let's have it, Robbie. It is. <laughs> Rob is still alive, by the way. I am very much alive. It's late where I am, but it's I'm still alive. <laughs> okay, so my favorite issue, which will probably come as no surprise. <laughs> if you know uh, Rob. <laughs> or if you've listened to this podcast quite often, is issue 23, titled Scoop. Oh, yeah! <laughs> which which refers not to like a scoop, but actually literally to the G.I. Joe character Scoop, who is admittedly my, my favorite character. So this issue is quite similar to an earlier issue, um, number eight of Special Missions Ambush, which we've mentioned before, but it features Scoop, and that's what makes it so much cooler. <laughs> Going along with Scoop on this mission is Stalker, Leatherneck, Musk, Rat, Tunnel Rat, and Hit and Run. And they've been tasked to snatch a high-profile individual in Sierra Gordo, 
And the issue opens with um, all of the Joes doing a bunch of um, technical stuff, which is, um, you know, kind of like testing their weapons to make sure they're working. And throughout the entire issue, you get lots of really cool, like technical military details, which I really like about the issue. It kind of fills up a lot of the pages where they're kind of talking about the, the stuff that they need to take with and and how Scoop, this um, new person who who's joining the team, um, who's never really gone on missions yet, um, he's just, you know, he... He's done, gone through the training, so he's qualified to be a Joe, but he is not field tested. He doesn't know all of these things. Yeah. That these, these, yeah, um, how these, these well-trained Jojos, the, the sort of things that they've picked up as they've gone along. And I like that kind of detailing of like, oh, you only have one bandage? Come on. You know, bullets normally go in and out. You need one for the entry hole and one for the exit hole. Um, and other little things like that. And that's one aspect that I quite enjoy. And they also do a really cool focus later on in the issue on the whole setup of the the ambush that they're setting up, um, where they're kind of detailing all the things that they're doing to try and get this all in place so that they can um, achieve their mission against the Iron Grenadiers, actually, who are protecting this person that they're trying to apprehend. And the whole middle of the issue is quite cool because it's all properly nighttime. Um, the entire like color palette is blues and black and greens and you can actually feel the night time which often i mean we've mentioned before you don't get that sense of night time that's a really cool sequence so another thing i quite liked about the issue um is that the iron grenadiers aren't in their uniforms they're kind of more appropriately dressed for the setting which is kind of like a jungle setting and i thought that was pretty awesome well, yes and no. They they were in their uniforms, but they were kind of broken down, and none of them were wearing their signature helmets. They all looked like they were wearing the Iron Grenadier uniform after, like, being in the jungle for about three weeks. Like, they looked tatty and dirty. You notice that in getting there as well, I think, near the end of the issue, when you have the people who are out there on the mission that they're picking up, you know, their outfits as well aren't exactly perfect. Iceberg's torn off his sleeves. Yes, you know, and it's kind of like it's nice to see these variations on the characters and, and sun's out, guns feel out. more real. Did anybody notice that right right arm grenade toss from about a hundred yards <laughs> to the shore? Wow. That was incredible. Sorry, that's the you know little iceberg inside. Yeah, he missed he's, his calling. He's quite impressive. <laughs> <laughs> and unlike like the earlier issue where you have um, Lifeline, that Lifeline featured issue, where you find him annoying. Uh, issue number four. Kind of like in issue four, you kind of Scoop is redeemed by the end of the issue, where he kind of faces off against an Iron Grenadier in hand-to-hand combat, and he he overcomes him by kind of knocking him out with his gigantic camera. Yeah, and so I just like like the, the also the disconnectedness in moments in the story where you kind of jump from Scoop kind of falling asleep, and then suddenly like they're in in the middle of the shit, and like stuff is just going bad, and yeah, and this is a good example also of an issue where everything just goes wrong. Like, they don't win, people get shot, they leave. But, like, on the final pages of the issue, like, Scoop's like, oh, but we didn't, you know, I lost all my footage and we, we didn't get the guy. And, and Stalker just says, well, what do you mean for nothing? They're still kicking, ain't you? They're still alive. So that in itself is a win. You know, they did survive this, this hectic situation. Did Great. you find this comic after you had an affinity for Scoop, or, or did this help build that? No, in researching this episode, I actually found this issue. I don't think I've ever read this before. Um, did it taint so kind your of just... perception of Scoop? 
No, it kind of informed it a bit more because, I mean, he, he really isn't in the comic so much, I think. And basically everything that I liked about him was just coming from his file card and his look. And this kind of just informed it a little bit more. I mean, obviously it feels like, you know, the Joes are saddled with this guy. He's just, he's not doing his job and they don't like him. But yeah, by the end of the issue, he's redeemed himself and he's just become more capable and now field tested. He's, he's a proper Joe. So. I'm so glad you mentioned the file card. Yes. Because this issue is his file card. <laughs> the events in his file card pertain to this issue. And that is so fucking cool. Like, uh, what? You don't get that for many Joes. So if you haven't read this issue, but you have read his file card, read the issue. If you've read the issue but haven't read Scoop's file card, read (laughs) Scoop's file card. It's like, what? Okay. That kind of, like, working together with a toy line, the sort of closeness of the cooperation between the comic and file card writing, like, I don't think that exists in any other medium ever. (laughs) <laughs> Definitely. I mean, I'm probably Larry Harmer wrote the file card, but I mean, it's it's great like that. To think so, yeah. I mean, I don't know what came first, you know, the file card or the issue. Maybe the file the file card influenced him to go. This is pretty cool. I, I can turn this into an issue. The figure was definitely on pegs before the issue. Well, then, yeah, I think that's brilliant. You know, the file card inspired him to go. Let's make an issue about this guy. Let's show people why he's worth getting, which I think was probably the reason for the Lifeline comic as well. Featuring yeah. this pacifist, but how he still, he's still a he soldier. lends something to the team. Yes, he's still worth being a G.I. Joe. So, awesome. I'm not colored, in my opinion, by the appearance of Scoop or not. So that kind of doesn't factor into my thinking. But I think this issue apes issue number eight a bit too closely. I guess it's several years down the line, so we, we, we don't have the benefit of reading these issues as spaced out as they were, but reading them in trade paperback formats, one after the other, eight will always be the more superior issue to this. Just the storytelling is, is, is far less on the nose. Uh, I'm afraid, like, having the rookie guy come along and having Stalker have to explain absolutely everything is perhaps running the risk of the thing that I like least in comic book writing, and that's when it seems overwritten. When you are literally having a scene with a rookie character where it's actually the, the author is basically educating the audience, but not doing it in a very roundabout or a more candid way of of explaining this information, uh, this is very like, as I say, on the nose, you know. He's explaining word for word why you put your compass in these pockets and your map in these pockets and why you take out the swivels on your machine gun uh, strap and why you put camouflage on your face or why you uh, expend your weapon I mean- uh, when you're over the sea. You know, it's like you want to really, really educate your readership and make no bones about doing it kind of bluntly, drawing attention to itself, basically. Yeah, but it serves I, a purpose, and it is to, to educate the rookie, so it's it's kind of snuck in surreptitiously, but not, but surreptitiously anyway. Also, yeah, but at the same time, I mean, often the issues do do this, where they do kind of explain details that would be completely obvious. But, but Stalker, even, like Stalker even works technical details into the Joes who should know better. 
Like, they hit the ground, and he's like, proceed in cross formation. It's like, uh, these guys know well, what they're I doing. Mean, he has to, yeah, but he has to tell them what they're going to need to be doing when they hit the ground. <laughs> I know you're going to defend this issue uh, tooth and nail. I'm just saying, if, yeah. you compare it, if you compare it to issue 8, where Flint hits the ground, and he's like, noise discipline, uh, or he doesn't even need to say that. He, like... Texas Compass points in one direction, and the next panel, you've got the Joes proceeding through the jungle with their assigned positions, each man knowing what he needs to do. I'm going to say that I kind of... I agree with what you're saying, in that having it over-explained uh, in a comic book is, is kind of... It is irritating, and it is insulting to the intelligence of the reader. But at the same time... I don't know if it's insulting, it's, because it, it's all very legit like military stuff. Well, see, that, that's that would thing. be would be new information to us. So I'm I kind of I can't make that a criticism, but I just think that it it's lazy writing because I can see what he's doing. It's yeah. special missions, baby. That's all. <laughs> no, they gotta lay I, out. They're in more detail. What I want to say is I really like that factor. I think I know what you're getting at, Steve, because I like hearing all of these terms and hearing the technical detail. Yeah, the technical detail, the operational sort of procedure, that kind of thing. I do like it. The information is cool. It's and, it's heavy-handed leadership, brother. It's top down. They're they're yeah. they're laying out stuff, you know. It's stuff that they don't need to obviously lay out uh, with each other. It's it's a personal quirk of mine that I fucking hate somebody when they tell me, to, uh, like when they tell me to do something that is so obvious. It really drives me crazy. But I also understand why people do it. I, I don't want to hear anything obvious. <laughs> obviously, yeah, Rob, Rob, anything else you want to jump in with uh, with your issue? Yeah, I, th- I think I covered it pretty comprehensively. Yeah, it's Scoop. I can't help but like it, so... <laughs> Rob had the Scoop on Scoop. So that's kind of messy. <laughs> Usually Steve uh, likes to jump in with one of these. I've got one of these special things uh, that I want to throw at us on this podcast episode. Usually uh, Steve likes to throw off some kind of, should I say, surprising top five list or something that comes out of nowhere. I've been wanting to do one of those for a while. I want to ask you guys, Within the entire special missions run, and try to exclude the issues that we've covered because we don't want to be redundant. What are some of the cooler moments for you in the special missions run? Just you know, in isolation, you know, there can be ridiculous things or or really kind of you know deep things that you found. Was there anything that you wanted to maybe mention that wasn't an issue that none of us have covered? That kind of thing. And who wants to go first? Or should I open it up and then you guys can follow through? Sounds right. Okay, I know that there's a lot of listeners out there that are probably wondering, why haven't we gone over Ring of Fire, and, and why haven't we gone over the whole secret Chinese village in the mountains issue, and all the moral things there? Well, I think it's because it is such a cool series of issues, and because it's very difficult to find one in particular that stands out as being the best one. I found that little run to be very cool to read, but I find that I, I enjoy little moments from it. I enjoy the sort of Confucian characteristics of that, you know, both with the old hermit that lives uh, on the riverside who spent 10 years building his uh, farm up when it gets destroyed and everything, you know, he's um, he's unwilling to leave it because it's still his, it's still his land. Those kind of things were very cool. Anderson eventually becoming a freedom fighter in the mountains, I thought was a really great kind of uh, tip of the hat to to that kind of storytelling. Once again, it's very almost Confucian. You know, he finds his path only after the previous guy has fallen apart. And then he understands it so much that that becomes his path in life. 
I thought that was particularly cool. In issue 17, All in a Night's Work, I thought this whole scenario was a great one, but I think my favorite thing here is uh, firstly them getting woken up early and uh, having to go on the mission and, and not knowing what's going on. It's kind of what Special Missions is about. You know, everything's classified. But I thought that the thing that stood out for me in this issue was that they made Hardball kind of a cool character. I think that was great. And I think that's something, it's a recurring theme for me in Special Missions and, and how they've taken characters that people don't regard as very cool characters, Lightfoot, Hardball, Lifeline, and turned them into really cool characters. But in this issue, it's Hardball, somebody who I, I recently got the figure of. And I quite like the toy. I think the toy is pretty cool. And my favorite line uh, in this issue so far is um, Stalker says to, uh, I'm guessing it's Anderson again. Or not Anderson, it's another government spook. And he says to them, he's like, now if you'll excuse us, we have some work to do. Bloop him, hardball. That's right. Bloop. What a cool word is bloop. Okay. And then hardball <laughs> turns around and he's like, consider them blooped. And then you got the vomp, vomp, vomp sound effect from the grenade launcher. And I love that. Bloop is such a cool word. I wonder if that's a real military term. Oh, it is. <laughs> it is. Is it? Yeah. In Nam, the guys carrying the M79 grenade launcher were called the bloopers. Or ah. They, they would bloop frags on Charlie. <laughs> hey, dude. I, there you go. Yo, I just dropped three military terms. Boom. <laughs> mm. But yeah, I love that. I thought that was such a cool word. I, I actually canned myself laughing because it reminds me of another... Um, Urban dictionary term blap, which is the sound of oh no, somebody, come on! Uh, it's just the sound of somebody slapping, <laughs> slapping you with their dick. Oh, <laughs> <damn>. Really, <laughs> really, folks? Like that motherfucker got blapped. Damn! And your mother's next. <laughs> to answer your question, man, I'm going to list what I consider to be the ingredients that the best of the special missions brought into sharp focus like the, if there was if there was a template for the perfect special missions issue it became quite evident in the ones that that really really shone for us the first was obviously technical accuracy like special missions was a sh was a showcase for larry Harmer's level of research and acumen when it comes to military procedures weapons and equipment and the mentality of the protagonists you know, he got into the minds of the man out there in the bad bush just trying to trying to survive, trying to achieve the mission. But a soldier only wins by surviving. It's that, that kind of core philosophy that the G.I. Joes all have. The other ingredient is that they typically had a message that soldiers do their jobs, and that is their ideology. They do their jobs as ethically as the situation allows, uh, and that sometimes is to the chagrin of their would-be puppet masters. I mean, for instance, they they stick it to Anderson in in issue number eight. They do not do as the CIA would have had them do, and and basically throw themselves on the the altar so that the CIA could could get these Russians to believe that the that the American defector was indeed legitimately defecting and not just part of an elaborate plan to install faulty computer chips in Russian computers. I mean, like, it's a rather convoluted plot, but the bottom line is the Joes effectively fail at what the CIA wanted them to do. But the ultimate baddie in that issue was actually the CIA. So the Joes stuck it to the man, and that was the message of that issue. 
Um, typically, a really good issue of Special Missions has a twist in it. Uh, information that the reader never had is made clear by the conclusion. And sometimes in, in the really, really exceptional issues, that information is in, isn't even in the hands of the Joes. That somehow things do a 180, and even our protagonists are caught by surprise, but somehow manage to make their way out of it just okay. And then the fourth ingredient, and only the truly best issues have this, is that you get a bittersweet note right at the end. There's no such thing as total victory. Even a technical victory might come at a personal cost. For instance, in issue one, Hawk mentions that this must have been a total victory because the Joes succeeded in their, their goal without firing a single shot. But the defector that they managed to secure from the Russians, why did he defect in the first place? He loved his job. He loved his position. But he defected because his wife killed herself after the Soviets wouldn't promote her husband because she was a Jew. I mean, like, okay, we're getting to some really personal shit here, but, like, there is a bittersweet note to the Joe's victory. A hell of an exit, too. That guy gets whisked away. You don't see that kind of stuff again until uh, the Batman franchise with Nolan, mm-hmm. where that yeah. guy gets fishhooked. You're oh, like, yeah, what it's the heck? Pretty dramatic. Uh, Skyhook. Oh, uh, yeah. Yeah. So yeah, th- those are the things that I really, really admire in the special missions writing and plotting. If it has those ingredients, it's a winner. And a lot of issues had that for me. Definitely. Which is why I had to resort to a very personal pick as my favorite, because of my personal connection to the story. But yes, special missions was definitely a treat for any Joe fan. Sophisticated stuff. For the most part. Since everybody in the world is snatching IPOs up, I would love to see a, a G.I. Joe Special Missions Netflix series or something that, that just uh, kind uh, of takes warfare seriously and, and the stuff that the people are carrying around. It's the perfect time for such a uh, program, to be honest. I would even go as far as to say that, you know what, if they just used the G.I. Joes as a template for that TV series and they made characters that were, I would imagine, uh, carbon copies of Joes, but just named them as different things and whatever and put that on Netflix, I'd probably enjoy that just as much because then it gets away from the licensing bullshit of Hasbro. You know? Well, Hasbro's got to sort it out sooner or later. The IPs are moving. I mean, people are making series called Jessica Jones, so I'm not sure what G.I. Joe has Jones in mind. Is brilliant, by the but way. In this episode, a lot of these missions, in these issues that we've been reading, I've felt would be um, would would translate really well to to screen. Um, and and that was something that that kind of kept me stuck to some of these issues was that I would love to see that in action. Amen, brother. Yeah. Concur. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, Rob? Oh, nice, Rob. Nice. <laughs> um, I think one of the cooler issues, or the ones that I found, like the most M. Night Shyamalan issue, <laughs> is, uh, <laughs> is, <a twist>. issue, <laughs> is issue 22, which is Decisions. Um, where Shockwave and a bunch of Joes are trying to save yeah, people from hostage situations. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, in exactly. the lead up to this uh, recording session, I confused uh, 20 and 22. And I was telling you yeah. guys, yeah, my favorite issue is 22, the yeah. one in the snow. And incidentally, 
They're the both one with in Shockwave, the yeah, it is set in the snow as well. But like I meant, the house. I meant the ones with the Cobra Wolves. Okay. Yes, not the ones with the uh, the dude with the grin. While it is a suspenseful issue, it once again deals with like nameless terrorists. Yeah, but I mean, I I just like that the twist is is really cool. How they're kind of building up the whole time, even the dialogue early in the issue. Once you've read the issue and you go back to it. You can see it's quite ambiguous, or that actually you can interpret it a different way. And I quite like that about the issue. There is one contrivance, and that's the fact that, like, there's an M16 on the kitchen table. Yeah, but it's, it's my water pistol. Oh, it's a water, it's a water gun. Like, yeah. Uh... <laughs> oh, gosh. Really? Yeah. But otherwise, yeah, I think that's, that's, that, that was a really cool, cool issue in that, yeah, once you've read the issue, you can go back and enjoy it for different reasons. Who's crawling around in the drainage ditch in that issue? Hit is that and run. another battle force? Hit and oh, run, hit and in, run in the Arctic. Arctic here? Yeah, isn't that yeah. cool? Talking about wet feet as a soldier, that's just, uh, that's real life, brother. And, uh, I mean, <laughs> finally Chuckles decides to cover up a bit. <laughs> His Hawaii Five-0 is not going to fly in Nebraska. Yeah, and <laughs> that's probably another thing I like about Space Iowa, Missions homie. is the Iowa. use of Chuckles. Yeah. Oh, shit. Sorry. <laughs> right. Sorry, USA. You know I'm going to take my shots when I can. <laughs> <laughs> yes, sorry. Uh, so, Steve, also, were there any favorites of um, of our listeners that are worth mentioning? Jim Godfrey weighed in with a, a very cool message, which so tough to pick out a favorite. But for me, the one that has endured since childhood as encapsulating the spirits of special missions is Issue 8, Ambush. Mm. Yes, sir. From the snappy dialogue between the Joes and Anderson during the briefing to the ironic twist at the end after the CIA setup is revealed, the writing's just great. There's about half a dozen pages where not a lot actually happens, but the team is basically just creeping through the jungle to the ambush point. But it's so atmospheric and brimming with little nuggets of military SOPs. Plus the two pages of almost dialogue-free panels where the Joes are just laying in wait. Totally gripping and visual storytelling. Then there's Trimpy's artwork, which embodies Joe to me, but in particular when he was penciler and inker. That style of his when he took on both duties is emblazoned on my mind when I think of special missions. Now my honorable mentions go to issue 6, Evasion, Outback's Time to Shine. Issue 3, Burnout, the subtle complexity given to a throwaway character like Deke is very Larry Harmer, a distinctly adult comic book for a toy tie-in. And issue 10, Turnabout. Oh, damn, my least favorite. (laughs) (laughs) But uh, Jim goes on to say that in Turnabout, the awesome pacing to the story, and (laughs) he makes light of the fact that uh, the line, death to the running dog lackey of the imperialist, warmonger, crypto-fascist, military-industrialist, capitalist cartels. Uh Uh, He snuck that that one in there, saying that it's classic harmer. Um, and then as for the bad apples of special missions, I'd put money on us all agreeing that issue 24 was just horrible. Herb's <laughs> writing just doesn't live up to the artwork. And issue 27, which wasn't god-awful, but with being neither written by Larry nor drawn by Herb, it didn't have the same feel as the rest of the run. And mm-hmm. that was his two pennies worth. But, uh, and quite a, quite a, quite a valuable two pennies. I mean, that, that ran into a, quite a lengthy paragraph. Uh, so thanks for authoring that for us, Jim. I, I'd just like to take this opportunity to say communicating with you has been a hoot. 
and keep it up and the customs look awesome and I would also like to encourage every other G.I. Joburg listener out there get in contact with us find us we uh, we love hearing from you and we love responding and we love keeping the conversations alive about G.I. Joe toys comics movies cartoons whatever we're definitely a port of call if you want a sounding board for whatever you have to say about uh, your hobby our hobby i just like to say thank you to guys like Backyard Battles. They are on Instagram. This guy takes really amazing shots of G.I. Joes doing what Joes are meant to do. Another guy also on Instagram is a guy called Night Force. Uh, he does really interesting customs and also does a bit of uh, photo work with these Joes. Keep it up, bro. That stuff's looking cool. Uh, guys like Jim Godfrey, all of the guys that have been in contact with us through Facebook, through messaging, all of that. Thank you, guys. Those messages mean a lot to us. And uh, to the Yojo Museum and Outlet, uh, you guys are awesome. I love the work that you guys are doing. And, uh, yeah, hopefully in the near future, we will get to meet each other face-to-face. And lastly... <laughs> Hire me, you. please. Yes. And, and lastly, uh, a big thank you Careful to 3D Joes. I don't even know if you guys know who we are, but we know who you are because we are often on your website uh, looking at um, the awesome 360-degree shots that you guys oh, have done. Every, everybody yeah. knows who G.I. Joe Berg is. You, you guys are like the bad boys of podcasting, let's be honest. Absolutely, definitely. And I want to thank Kujo, our frequent collaborator. You're awesome no, to work No with. need, brother. The pleasure's mine, you know that. <laughs> we, we see you, David Cabal. Thank you for that interaction as well. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I think that's also a good note to start wrapping things up for this banner episode, our special missions, special Christmas edition. (laughs) (laughs) Time to break out the eggnog. Yeah, man. If you are listening to this around the Yule time, I hope you have a very peaceful and very restful holiday season, Christmas season, Hanukkah season, whatever you happen to celebrate. I hope it's a good one. And once again, just to reiterate the point I made earlier on, I hope that you get to take a little bit of time out for yourself to enjoy this awesome hobby that we we seem to have connected on yeah and yeah merry christmas happy seasons of holiday times and present giving to everybody yeah merry christmas boys yo joe ho ho ho